Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 2, The Ancient World, Episode 28A, The Yamnaya Culture. In episode 28 of volume 2, we spoke about Indo-European languages and we tentatively concluded that there were peoples who could be referred to as Proto-Indo-Europeans who lived on and around the Eurasian steppe around 5,000 years ago. So the question is, who exactly was living on the Eurasian steppe around 5,000 years ago according to the archaeological record? The answer is the people belonging to the Yamnaya culture, also quite commonly referred to as the Yamna culture. In brief, it is commonly believed by historians that the peoples of the Yamnaya culture likely spoke a version of the Proto-Indo-European language, an unknown theoretical language constructed by lingual experts tying common links between related and later ancient languages that we have certain knowledge of. We can expect during this exploration into the Yamnaya culture of the Eurasian steppe to discover peoples whose ranges were remarkably large due to the nature of their herding animals while remaining semi-nomadic, riding on horseback and expertly using wheeled wagons for transport. Vasily Gorodsov was a Russian archaeologist born in the year 1860 and just after the turn of the 20th century, he was excavating in the Don River Valley where he discovered over a hundred Kurgans. A Kurgan is the name of a burial mound, the likes of which are typically found in the modern countries of Russia and Ukraine. The Kurgans that Gorotsov discovered were dated throughout the Bronze Age in this area so they were not exclusive to one culture or one century. It is from such archaeology that the concept of a Kurgan culture was generated, but little was initially known about the Kurgan culture other than they certainly existed. As science advanced, a lot more was established based on the locations and the grave goods of the Kurgans, and we will come back to that. The significance of the Kurgan culture is that it lends its name to the theory that was first coined in the 1950s that this area of the world was the origin of all Indo-European languages and so the theory was called 
the Kurgan hypothesis, the most popular hypothesis about the geographical origin of Indo-European languages. However, the Kurgan culture has since proved to be very general to a number of coexistent, concurrent and evolving cultures in this area of the world and its surrounding areas over the course of many centuries. The Yamnaya culture is indeed one of the subcultures of the Kurgan culture. The centre of Yamnaya culture is the Pontic Caspian steppe, which is the part of the Eurasian steppe that is to the north of the Caucasus, which itself was an area where another Kurgan building culture existed called the Mykop culture. The Yamnaya culture is suggested to have emerged around 3400 to 3300 BCE, but it is very important to clarify that the culture is retrospectively named, and there is no evidence of a conquest of the area, and neither is there evidence of a destruction of the Yamnaya culture at a later date. Instead, we can describe the evolutions and movements of peoples and cultures as fluid, with peoples moving about, mixing with other cultures and evolving into something new. The term Yamnaya refers to a period of time that appears to have had a bit of identity distinguishable from other areas and periods. The word Yamnaya is derived from a Russian word for pits, which describe the pit graves that were found in the Kurgans dating to this period. Clues about the Yamnaya culture can be found by examining the contents of the pit graves. Initially, it certainly appears that the pit burials within the Kurgans were exclusive to the elite members of the society, which points towards a stratified social system. It seems unrealistic to consider that all members of society could have been buried in this fashion. The bodies of the pit grave occupants were mostly buried face up and could sometimes contain a female body, but generally it would contain male occupants. The ultimate range of the peoples considered to belong to Yamnaya culture in the archaeological record cover such a vast distance of land that we cannot standardise all Yamnaya Kurgan pit graves as having uniform characteristics. For example, there are differences in the specific natures of the pit graves in the eastern reaches of the Yamnaya culture when compared to the western reaches. Artifacts So what did we actually find in the grave pits of these Yamnaya period Kurgans? Well, it would make sense in terms of a general overview to also consider some of the archaeological finds throughout the area from this time period, and not just the Kurgans. It is really important to stress what we have stressed before, that the Yamnaya culture is labelled by historians, and that there was fluidity in the various tribes of what can be described as Yamnaya-dated and located evidence, which influenced the specific nature of people who lived in the various locations. For example, the Yamnaya cultures of the eastern fringes would have been influenced by their non-Yamnaya neighbours in their specific cultures differently 
to those on the northern, southern and western fringes. And this makes sense when you consider that the southern Yamnaya are much less likely to have interacted with northern Yamnaya cultures than they would have with their neighbours in the Caucasus, the Maikop culture. Therefore, southern Yamnaya traditions would have become more distinct from northern Yamnaya traditions and even more so as time progressed. So later Yamnaya cultures, such as those of the 3rd millennium BCE, would have shown further evolution and distinction. So we must be absolutely mindful of this when attempting to analyse Yamnaya as a single culture. A more familiar example of such a problem is when studying Celtic cultures of Europe and the fact that it is almost impossible to talk in depth of Celticism without respecting the diversity of geography and time. Celtic peoples are only labelled as Celtic because aspects of their traditions relate to other Celtic peoples. And the same should be said of the Yamnaya. So let's have a look at what has been discovered in archaeology that can tell us more about who the peoples who belonged to the Yamnaya area and period were. Many Yamnaya burials saw the deceased covered in ochre. Ochre, in a very general sense, is ground minerals and rocks, which is often a vivid red colour and generally is used for ceremonial and decorative purposes. It is possible that those individuals covered in ochre were significant members of society or that the ochre is spiritually significant. A lack of written records leave us in the dark about the reasoning, but ochre is something that humankind has used in almost every corner of the globe throughout prehistory, so we can speculate about its significance in human history and make suggestions about its significance to the Amnaya. There is evidence of animal sacrifices within the Kurgans. The animal sacrifices include sheep, and at other sites there is evidence of shepherd's crooks, which points us towards the significance of sheep and shepherds to the Yamnaya. Typically, the steppelands were grasslands in which cultures needed to have an excellent knowledge of animal behaviours and migrations. The ability to control herds of wild sheep must have been a skill that was highly celebrated by the Yamnaya as this would be a great source of food and hides, which would provide shelter and warmth for people on open grasslands, which undoubtedly experienced diverse temperatures throughout the course of the year. An excellent shepherd was a valuable asset. Other animal sacrifices include cattle, which would not only have been a valuable source of meat and hide, but also were valuable beasts of burden, able to pull wheeled vehicles over long distances, a point that we will come back to a little bit later. The other significant animal sacrifice was that of horses. The horse was the steppe land specialist, an animal that originated in these lands and one whose usefulness spread around the world quickly once discovered. The horse is strong fast and rideable, which gave it a myriad of uses and advantages to the human species. The presence of the horse gave steppeland cultures such as the Yamnaya an evolutionary edge over human societies. It could be used as a beast of burden, an efficient long-distance vehicle, or an effective war vehicle. 
we should not feel surprised that horses were ceremonially sacrificed in honour of the greatest members of Yamnaya society. Stone stele have also been discovered within the pit graves of the Yamnaya culture and the illustrations on these stele are the closest thing to contemporary written records that we are ever likely to find. Images of shepherds' crooks further cement the significance of expert shepherdy to the Yamnaya culture. We can see images of individuals wearing clothing such as tunics, which shouldn't be hugely surprising, and we can also see individuals with footwear that resemble sandals. We also see images of men with beards, often with a pointed apex. We can't be sure if this was a general fashion or one exclusive to the elite class. Pottery exists with deposits of grain, evidenced by imprints within the pots. The significance of this is that it may give us an indication of the main diet of the Yamnaya, and we would suspect that the diet would have been based fundamentally on meat and grain, with a significant number of foragers societies present in and around the steppe lands generally, we can assume that foraging for edible plants was likely for the Yamnaya. What we cannot see is much evidence of seafood, which is hardly surprising with only a minority of tribes having access to the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea. In some of the Kurgans, we can see that wheeled wagons or carts were placed, which is quite significant because we don't really have a lot of evidence for wheeled vehicles before this time period, which points us towards the Yamnaya being among those who first mastered the art of wheeled transport. With the Yamnaya existing on the vast grass plains of the steppe, mobility was an essential key to survival. The reason for this is as pastoral herders in the steppe, they would have needed to have tracked the seasonal migrations of animal herds and they would have needed to relocate over long distances while taking all of their belongings with them. A number of stone axes were discovered in the pit graves, which is not hugely surprising. The stone axe was the multi-purpose tool of choice for all Stone Age cultures. We can also see bronze daggers, which symbolise the transitional status of many Neolithic societies from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, so the Yamnaya had knowledge of metallurgy. Maybe more surprising is evidence of smelted iron artefacts. Ironmongery is something that is not generally attributed to this period of history. The first Iron Age societies emerged much later. One of the first societies to fully master the art of ironmongery were the Neo-Assyrians who prospered during the first millennium BCE, 2,000 years after the time of the Yamnaya. We do also know that the Hittites were ironmongers, but this may have been out of necessity rather than choice because of a lack of alloy metal to be coupled with the copper required to produce bronze. The Hittites were second millennium BCE culture, so just over a thousand years after the Yamnaya. The presence of iron artefacts in Yamnaya culture demonstrates the fact that they had mastered the technology to develop heats that would bring iron ore to melting point, or that they had encountered cultures who had developed that technology and traded these items with the Yamnaya. It certainly appears that this ironmongery was very low scale and isolated, however. Language. Clues about the life and traditions of the Yamnaya culture 
can be found in the languages of the modern world if we are to assume that the Yamnaya spoke a form of Proto-Indo-European language. Not every word in every Indo-European language will have Indo-European roots as many languages will have new words added to it according to necessity so a modern word like internet would have no Proto-Indo-European equivalent. The English word jacuzzi was formed from the surname of the Italian creators of the product. And the English word zombie is taken from the Bantu languages of Africa. So we wouldn't expect to find Proto-Indo-European words for any of these things. The fact that linguists have determined that there is a relationship between particular words in various Indo-European languages tell us that these words were relevant to the Proto-Indo-European language speakers. In this case, maybe the Yamnaya. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that linguists have suggested a Proto-Indo-European word for horse that is the parent word for all modern Indo-European words relating to horses. The fact that there is a Proto-Indo-European word meaning to plough is very interesting as this suggests a skilled level of farming that we may not necessarily expect to find from a fully nomadic society. The fact that there are Proto-Indo-European words for snow and freezing suggests that the area of Proto-Indo-European origin would be familiar with snow. The presence of words for wheel Wagon, wool and boat also tell us much about the geography and the lifestyle of Proto-Indo-European speakers. So if we assume that the Yamnaya were Proto-Indo-European language speakers, then these lingual speculations can affirm what we have already suggested when studying the archaeological record. Conclusions Many historians have studied aspects of Yamnaya archaeology and many papers have been written on the subject but not many historians have presented an overview of Yamnaya culture and this is because so much is down to speculation. However, we can suggest from the evidence who the Yamnaya people were, what they did and how they influenced the world. The main evidence that experts base their assumptions on are archaeology and language, as described in the first half of this episode. The nature of the burials, when compared to other similar burials excavated elsewhere in the world, tell us what was important to these people, both in the real world and spiritually. So, for example, the dominance of male burials, coupled with the dominance of male-kin relationship words in the Indo-European language, points us towards a society that was patrilineal. And many experts have concluded that the females of the Yamnaya cultures were generally expected to transfer into the tribe of their husband from the tribe of their father. This is something that I find intriguing when considering the expert opinion about Yamnaya hospitality. Much is made of the notion of hospitality within Yamnaya cultures. The word hospitality itself has strong cognate connections to other words in Indo-European languages. It directly relates to the Latin word hospes, which can mean both a host and a guest, both being the opposite transaction to the other. 
The tightness of the relationship between the words for host and guest are believed to have existed since Proto-Indo-European languages and subsequently the Yamnaya culture. With such a strong requirement for mobility in order to herd large groups of animals, there would have inevitably have been a regular interaction between tribes. In order to avoid hostility, yet another word that derives from the host-guest cognates, there would have needed to have been an understanding between those travelling through territories controlled by other Yamnaya tribes. Experts have speculated that the relationship between hosts and guests was sacred and that it was a societal expectation that hospitality should be observed. It is not out of the question that token tributes could have changed hands and this could have been in the form of horses, which were high value assets, and even females. I must admit that I haven't personally seen any evidence of this, but to my mind, it wouldn't be out of the question based on what we do know or think we know about Yamnaya culture and wider steppe cultures. Yamnaya Kurgans with the most decorated or highly ceremonial grave sites are speculated to belong to tribal chiefs, and we can sometimes see rows of horses' skulls carefully laid out or jewellery that is carefully made, such as canine teeth necklaces. It may have been that Yamnaya tribes were led by an alpha male or multiple alpha males that were revered by the rest of the tribe. It could even be that the tribal chiefs felt accountable to a sky father called Dius Pitar, or something similar in the Proto-Indo-European language. The word Pitar is believed to be the root of the word father and has evolved differently in other Indo-European languages. The Scots Gaelic word aher, the Danish word feder, the Greek word patir, the Sanskrit word pitr and the Italian word padre are just a few of the extensive number of words that mean father in modern languages that can all trace their origin back to Proto-Indo-European language. The notion of Deus Peter, the Sky Father, has migrated into Vedic religions of the Indian subcontinent as Dios Peter, and also to the pagan Romans as Jupiter, which we have anglicised as Jupiter. So the notion of Deus Peter as an important god to the Yamnaya has been deduced by tracing modern Indo-European words back to their roots. This also creates another interesting aspect of the Yamnaya. How did their language migrate and survive to influence modern languages from English in the far western British Isles to Sanskrit all the way over in the Indian subcontinent? Nikolai Mierpet was a Russian archaeologist born in 1922 who published a thesis about the ancient pastoralists of the steppe in the 1970s and he documented nine distinct regional instances of the Yamnaya. The fact that there were nine distinctions of the same root culture and the fact that their language appears to have influenced most of the modern languages of Europe and modern languages of the area of the world from Iran across to India says that this culture was a successful culture. 
It also suggests that it was a highly mobile culture and this does make sense when we consider that they were seasonal animal herders or pastoralists. The Yamnaya were not the only culture who lived this way so the question exists, why were the Yamnaya in particular so successful? My personal theory is that the Yamnaya were simply in the right place at the right time. The advent of the Neolithic Revolution changed the archaic tribal hunter-gatherer human into a modern agricultural sedentary human, and with this came a population boom. Different methods of preserving resources such as cultivating land for domestic crops and domesticating animals arrived on the planet for the first time. The world was changing at a rapid rate. The Yamnaya took everything that they had learned about pastoralism and horsemanship from the steppe cultures that they had evolved from and took it to the next level. The Yamnaya very quickly expanded their influence over the vast voids of the steppe that were waiting for human exploitation. Inevitably, they would encounter other cultures such as the old European cultures to their west and the Chalcolithic cultures of the Iranian plateau and the farmers of Anatolia to their south. All of these cultures had varying degrees of knowledge and technology relating to agriculture, so the Yamnaya were not necessarily introducing anything new there. But what they did have that was a major advantage was horsemanship. Horses were powerful, fast and controllable, a combination rarely seen elsewhere in the animal kingdom. Horses could be ridden by humans, meaning that both short and long distances could be travelled at speeds unknown to other societies. This enabled Jamnaya peoples to be able to herd larger groups of animals and would enable them to raid at speed. It would enable the Yamnaya to use horses to effectively pull wheeled vehicles over long distances and so proliferation of wheeled vehicles followed that would allow the Yamnaya to migrate long distances while maintaining possession of their belongings in their horse and oxen-drawn wagons, unhindered by the open landscape of the grassland steppe. This would give them an edge over their neighbours that would also make their knowledge and resources attractive to their neighbours who were undoubtedly willing to sacrifice or trade much with the Yamnaya for this knowledge and these resources the most powerful of which was horsemanship and horses. So their influence spread into neighbouring cultures with more lasting impact than by other cultures. Migration Before the 21st century, we really only had archaeological information to go by when studying the patterns of prehistoric people such as the Yamnaya. But now we have invaluable DNA study that can help us to both confirm and dispel theories that archaeologists have created to explain the movement of cultures. Traditionally, the Yamnaya culture is said to have existed around 3000 BCE and three or four centuries either side, after which the Yamnaya diversified and evolved into something else. They did not seem to conquer anybody when they emerged, and they did not seem to be conquered when they disappeared, although warfare was certainly a part of their lives. Having said that, there was a school of thought that when they expanded westwards, they encountered the Kukateni Trapilia culture and overran it. The Kukateni Trapilia were roughly centred on the modern country of Moldova, 
and are described as an egalitarian society, not as adept in warfare as the Yamnaya. With the emergence of Kurgans in Eastern Europe, it is suggested that the Western Yamnaya's influence started to flourish in Southeast Europe, potentially bringing Indo-European language with them. The Kukateni Tripilia are regarded as a Chalcolithic society, otherwise called the Copper Age. The Yamnaya brought the Bronze Age into Eastern Old Europe. Different schools of thought exist about how aggressively the Yamnaya integrated into Kukateni Tripilia territory. The Yamnaya seemingly expanded their influence along the Danube River Valley into the grasslands of the Pannonian Basin, roughly the lands of the modern country of Hungary. This would bring them into close contact with the corded ware cultures of Northern Europe. Some experts suggest that the corded ware cultures emerged as a consequence of Yamnaya contact with cultures of northeastern Europe, such as the funnel beaker culture and the globular amphora culture. All of these cultures are named after their pottery styles, with pottery being something that the Yamnaya were not comparatively interested or skilled with. The corded ware cultures are notable for the corded patterns on their pottery. Archaeologists cannot agree on whether the corded ware cultures were a consequence of Yamnaya expansion or whether they were subject to Yamnaya expansion. It is believed that the corded ware culture certainly assumed Indo-European language, if indeed they did not always speak an Indo-European language. The lack of a Yamnaya pottery footprint steals a vital clue from us about an excavatable aspect of influence. The evidence is scant on this particular aspect. It is believed that this journey from the steppe through Southeast Europe to Northern Europe is the story of the emergence of Proto-Germanic languages. A potential vector for the Proto-Celtic and Proto-Italic languages may be the Unitize culture, which emerged towards the end of the 3rd millennium BCE and preceded the Tumulus culture and subsequently the Urnfield culture of Central Europe, which leads us towards the emergence of Celtic culture in Central Europe. It is hard to know how much Yamnaya influence there was on these later cultures, but there definitely appears to be a viable linguistic migration theory. There is a further theory regarding the Corded Ware culture that there was an expansion back to the east into the traditional Yamnaya lands. We are not sure exactly how much influence either the Yamnaya or the Corded Ware culture had on the Catacomb culture of the Pontic Caspian steppe of the 3rd millennium BCE, but to the east of the Catacomb emerged the Sintashta culture, which are also believed to have been influenced by the Yamnaya and the Corded Ware culture, but have also been suggested to have been the basis for Indo-Iranian languages which represent the easternmost fringes of the Indo-European languages of the world. The Sintashta culture is believed to have been ancestral to the Vedic cultures of the northwest Indian subcontinent and therefore linked to the emergence of proto-Hinduism. This is where our story of the Yamnaya culture ends, as the future cultures had now replaced what we know of this highly successful, highly mobile, warrior class horse masters that may very likely have spoken the language that evolved 
to not just be the language that I am speaking to you in now, but also many, many others that exist in the world today. The next episode in the chronological story of the history of the world on the History of the World podcast will be episode 29 on Neolithic China, originally recorded back in August of 2019. Thank you very much for listening to this special episode of the History of the World podcast about the Yamnaya culture and it was at the request of the History of the World podcast Illuminati member Vibeki Moore. So thank you very much for such a wonderful suggestion Vibeki and uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Now if you want to commission your own episode then all you need to do is sign up to our Patreon account so if you just go to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on patreon you can sign up and as soon as you accrue the relevant amount of money you can commission your own particular episode on the subject of your choice so um do exactly what v becky done and uh and many others who will have their episodes coming up in the coming weeks And we're excited to announce a new member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week, and that is Jimmy. So welcome along, Jimmy, to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You now contribute towards the fortunes of the History of the World podcast. You you do your little bit and make it easier for me to present this wonderful project. So thank you so much. Listener messages and reviews. I got a message from Kat this week who put hi Chris I've been away for a bit but slowly catching up on Spotify uh, it now has some paid episodes uh, some paid for episodes via a membership but I'm confused as to how it works I am one of your Patreons is that the same thing or is this something else sorry I could not spot an answer on your website thanks Cat. basically let me explain it for everybody Cat. Um, you uh, if you sign up to be uh, a patron on Patreon then uh, you have access to the Patreon feed on the Patreon website, and that is the History of the World podcasts feed, um, where the bonus episodes that we publish uh, on a lot of weeks uh, will be uh, will be on that feed, so you can actually access the special episodes. But if you like to have all of your episodes in one place, so the regular episodes and the bonus episodes, um, you can sign up to be a subscriber on Spotify and you have access to them all. So you can do one or the other at the moment. You can basically access pretty much the same thing. But if you want it all in one place on Spotify, you have to subscribe through Spotify. Um, But um, essentially, um, the bonus episodes, what they are, are episodes which really describe the regular episode. So, for example, we just recorded this episode about the Yamnaya, and the bonus episode will be a description of what um, what resources we used to write that episode and a little bit extra. Um, so a little bit of chit-chat, 10-15 minute episodes um, that give you a bit of bonus material. So... That's all. That's really what it is. But if anyone's a bit confused, by all means, drop me a line and I'll explain it all to you. I'm very happy to explain it all to you. Um, anyway, that's it for this week. 
Uh, next time, um, if I'm able to produce these episodes quick enough, um, we'll be looking at the evolution of religion. And that, once again, is a subject that has been um, requested by a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, Amardeep Dagar. And um, that will be in our next special episode. And hopefully that will be next week. Uh, otherwise, we'll have a retrospective, unscripted episode. So we'll, there'll definitely be something coming out next week. So look forward to that. And until then, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.